This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. It's our first show back for 2017. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westward. It's good to be back in the cave with you all. That it is, Tom. <laughs> oh, wow. it it's on. It is on. Bursting with excitement there to be back. No, look, it is good Hi, to be Thomas. back. Hey, everybody. <laughs> look, tonight's show, I, I don't know if you've been listening to this program for a few years now, but the, the first show back after our absence is usually a kind of really mad sprint to the finish trying to quickly mention all the films that we've missed since we've been away. You know, we've kind of almost got to stop taking time off in January because that's become a really, for a while now actually, it's a really good release month in in Australia. So a lot of really important and exciting films have come out over the past, what, six to eight weeks since we've been away and um, we're going to try to rush through sort of the main ones of interest that are are still screening. So all the films we're going to talk about tonight are ones that you can still catch. Um, And look, other other news, of course, I'm just going to mention very... Very quickly, in brief, we've, we've lost a number of very wonderful people since we've last been on air. Carrie Fisher, Demi, Debbie Reynolds, John Hurt and Emanuela Riva all passed away. Um, maybe on upcoming shows we may, we, may, we may tip our hat at them properly and more substantially than me quickly reading a list of names. But I, just, just to acknowledge... I vote for the Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds weeping hour. Oh, I'm just a little, that? I'm a bit obsessed with that one, I must admit. We, right, we well, can follow it up with the John Hurt weeping hour. Oh, no. Yeah, well, we, we, we'll, we'll try to <laughs> do proper dedication to those four extraordinary individuals over the next few weeks. Uh, but we are going to get into it now. And look, the other, before we get into to it. The other thing I do want to say, though, is thank you to Zoran Ilyevsky and his team for filling in this time slot with their excellent show, Graphic Nature. I caught a few of them. A really, really fine show that Zoran has been doing over the past few years to fill in for us. I, I, I think there's plans for more. Um, if you didn't catch it, you can on Triple R's Radio On Demand. It's a show that looks at comics, graphic novels and comics. That's right. I think they even discuss whether you should talk about graphic novels or, or not. You can listen to all that on their show, but but thank you to that team. Uh, excellent show. It's, it's lovely having a show like that in place of us. But okay, let's get... Oh, I've wasted too much time already. Let's, We've got so much to get through, Thomas. <laughs> Emma, we, we really do. And actually, I'm going to get you to start, Emma, because oh. <laughs> one, of, one of the films we, we do want to mention was... What, I think it's probably safe to say now it's been the biggest box Boxing Day release from late last year. Yes, yes, uh, yes. It's a film that's still playing everywhere. It's been nominated for a bunch of awards. It's winning a bunch of awards, and that's La La Land. Uh, curiously, a very weird backlash has has, has built around it. Um, I don't know if it we has. want to touch on that, but but Emma, you you adored this film, so I, I want you to, to take the lead on La La Land. I did. Well, I think uh, La La Land's the type of film that um, you have to have all you, the ducks lining up in the right order to really enjoy La La Land. And for me, it just had a whole lot of elements that came together. First of all, Damien Chazelle. Um, Whiplash was probably my favourite film of the year 2014, I think it was, when it came out. So I came into it being a huge fan of what he's doing and uh, his love of music. I love jazz. I love Hollywood musicals. I love Jacques Demy, Mm. and as you do, Thomas, and that is 
very much what is flowing through La La Land, I feel. I don't mind looking at, uh, you know, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone and spending a bit of time with them. I like pretty coloured frocks. And uh, so, you know, it was all there and I like a bit of a love story. So I think that La La Land kind of burst out and everyone loved it so... Well, seemingly loved it so much or a group of people loved it so much because it was the antidote film to 2016. 2016 seemed like a a particularly difficult year and it's interesting that it really played into... um, that the Hollywood musical was at a time when it was, you know, the wartime period. I think we all feel like we're pretty much in the wartime period now. So it, it provided a lot of levity and hope and joy in a way that... A lot of cinema doesn't in this day and age. Uh, on the other hand, I think people, fa- other people found that really annoying uh, it, at this serious time that something... And a musical is certain an acquired taste and it's not necessarily the current climate of film. So uh, a lot of people found that a difficult pill to swallow. See, I thought the film had a bit of grit to it as well, though. I think, you know, the, the underlying sort of story it's being explored is this very difficult tension between... Um, pursuing a, a career especially an artistic career and and sort of having a normal relationship leaving leading a normal life and i don't think the film is saying it's extreme one or the other and it doesn't go all black swan where it's either sell yes. out or go insane but <laughs> it, it, it does look at how how, how, how difficult that, that that tension is and, and the moments in the film which are more dramatic acting scenes i thought were really quite powerful and that's yes. where we saw we really saw how good these two actors are. I mean, Gosling and Stone can pull out the dramatic chops when they need to, and some of those scenes were, um, within the context of what was otherwise a very light and fluffy film, quite, quite dramatic. And it didn't go into histrionics either. I thought there was some very strong acting. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed sort of its tips of the hats to the golden age of Hollywood musicals, especially those... um. Uh, so the Gene Kelly films and things like an American in Paris. Um, Manelli, what's his name? Vincent Manelli. Especially yeah. the Vincent Manelli. What's Minnelli. his name, Manelli? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's his name, Manelli? And Stan Vincente. Stanley um, Dolan. Yeah, very much yes, evoked those exactly. films. Early friend Ginger, but yeah, sort of through then Jacques Demy. Like it oh, felt like much. it was one step removed from classical Hollywood. It was through that kind of Jacques Demy filter. And we spoke about quite a few Jacques Demy films last year on Plato's Cave. So I enjoyed it for that. And it was the final sequence that really sold the film to me as well. I thought that kind of the glorious, both glorious and melancholic kind of fantasy sequences is what really elevated the film for me. Well, I have to say, and I will confess, I saw it three times over the holiday break. Jesus. And oh, yeah, I did, I did. And uh, <laughs> the interesting, the, the dream sequence, a very um, exciting dream sequence that's there is quite overwhelming when you first see it. But seeing it multiple times it's all from her point of view so it's all as the dream uh falling into place from her point of view so i thought it was interesting it kind of brought into play this idea of their dreams couldn't happen simultaneously really and that they were there to support each each other in getting their dreams but it was never going to happen for both of them at the same time and i thought it was a really strong fem- um, women's film in that way that she was never she never had to defer to him in the end um i really like that 
I was really charmed by it too, and I thought it was a very knowing film without ever throwing winks at the audience, which I admired. It, I think the um, uh, Seb or Ryan Gosling's character's love of jazz very much parallels the position in genre terms of uh, uh, the musical, an unfashionable uh, genre that the kids are never going to get into, surely, because it's just too unhip. And yet, uh, you know, this film straddles that line where it gets to celebrate. Um, uh, a form of film and music at once which has fallen by the wayside but will always have its uh, aficionati out there who will celebrate it and as it turns out I think uh, a lot of people are being turned on to the musical through this film and I, I think it, it's probably not going to be the case that a whole lot of other folks will get on board this and will suddenly have a, a whole new wave of uh, Hollywood musicals but I reckon one or two might start to trickle through and, and be as sincere in their love of, of the form of the integrated musical form is this where people do suddenly start singing and dancing in the streets uh, even the extras very jacques to me when the whole crowds uh, suddenly uh, become animate and dance and sing and um, yeah, there's a very, real frenchy hollywood thing to this especially the whole car sequence at the beginning which could have been goddard's weekend becomes a musical except it didn't have quite enough carnage <laughs> <laughs> la la land that's still on general release through entertainment one film three triple Alex, I believe you want to kick off our discussion of Jackie. Well, as the title suggests, this film follows Jackie Onassis, Jackie Kennedy then, the widow Jackie Kennedy, following the, uh, in the days following the assassination of her husband, President John F. Kennedy. Um, you guys might have heard about that. Um, I came to this solely because of the director, Pablo Lorraine, the Chilean director, who, for my money, is without question one of the most interesting and important filmmakers working today. I think he's just an extraordinary, extraordinary filmmaker. The subject matter did not appeal to me either way. I wasn't opposed to it, but not particularly interested. Um, but I very much came to this on the back of uh, Neruda, but probably most of all his film, uh, No, um, from uh, was it 2012. No is the only film of his I've seen, and yeah, that, that, is, that was incredible. No is just unbelievable. Yeah. It's a uh, Gail Garcia Bernal plays a advertising executive um, who, as the title suggests, is working for the No campaign for the 1988 plebiscite to boot out Pinochet in Chile. Um, so Lorraine's kind of gave this this Jackie project, and you know it's enough for me to kind of sit down and watch this. And I think it's um, it's an extraordinary. I mean, it's a Lorraine, it's a Lorraine film. It's a really strong film. Um, I think it's a it's an, it's one of those subject matters that I don't think I'd ever really thought about. What would it have been like for that particular woman, who's you know, it's such a such an iconic moment of history. But I never really thought about what that would have been like in terms of the the emotional subjectivity of what she must have gone through. The only thing I have to say that really held me back with this film is I absolutely flatline with Natalie Portman. Um, I, she is for me, and I know this is sacrilege for a lot of people, I have the same experience watching Natalie Portman on screen that I do with Meryl Streep in that I'm always watching Natalie Portman acting. I'm not watching Jackie. I'm watching Natalie Portman play Jackie. It's exactly and, and what I And it was I just got. such a huge disconnect for me in that I could admire the craft of this film. And I very much appreciated the human story, but unfortunately there was this fundamental disconnect. It's a strong performance in terms of act, uh, Oscar fodder, um, mm, but that's yeah. that's just how Portman really she strikes sold, me. She sold it with the voice, though. She got that 
voice which is really hard it's a very hard accent that Jackie Kennedy accent but I think the voice in a way was what grated me the most in the same way that Meryl Streep does and that it's it's yeah. such an capital A acting voice. I, you, know, I, you can yes. see, her, see her in all of her interviews. You know, I sat down and I studied the videos so vigilantly. Yeah, you yeah. know this. Um, I mean, it sounds weird to kind of critique somebody, <laughs> to criticize somebody for being so diligent, but it just yeah, there I, wasn't one moment that I thought that this was Jackie. Onassis or Jackie Kennedy. Really? I was constantly aware that I was yeah, watching I, Natalie Portman acting. I've heard quite a few people express that sentiment, but I, I loved it. I, I, I really got lost in her performance, and I think it's possibly the best thing she's done. So it worked on me. And I know what you're saying with Meryl Streep. I have the same issue. I used to have it with Kate Blanchett as well in some of her earlier performances. It was a bit too capital A acting for me, but um, I really got into Portman's performance in this. But seriously, I think you had difficulties too. Well, I did, but I what I found most interesting in this film, I also found to be its biggest drawback, which is that there's a bit of distance, and that's because the film is grappling with how to tell the story, which involves real events and real people about something really traumatic that all of the world thinks it knows something of, but in fact knows nothing of. It's trying to tell the untellable and then grapple with the fact that it's untellable. So we always have this business of um, uh, Portman's Jackie talking to, is it Billy Crudup, um, yeah. reporter? Mm. Yeah. And then recanting half of what she says, saying, no, the public can never know this, which is a really uh, awkward device for me because then just putting stuff out there only to sort of pretend recant it. I read this, um, I saw this much at the same time as I was reading a book I adore called HHHH, which deals with the impossibility of doing justice to a similar historical event, uh, an assassination, which was the assassination of Heydrich, the protector of uh, the protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia in World War II, or as we mostly know it, Czechoslovakia. And that book is extraordinary and grapples with this, this very same issue. And somehow it works better in a literary mode, I found, than in this film. The book takes it from every angle. It, it, it um, goes a few paragraphs only to then say, actually, I really took a few liberties there. That was unconscionable. Let's look at how some other people tried to tell the story. No, that wasn't any better. Never mind. Let's just carry on with the story. And it's incredibly deft and smart and knowing and yet tells a story captivatingly. Jackie just didn't do that for me. I didn't feel anything from this film because Portman was doing all that capital A acting. <laughs> oh, no. Because I, 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 um, I saw this quite late last year and came out of the screening thinking, I, I think I've just seen my favourite film for 2017. Wow. Yeah, That's I, big. I, it's an amazingly made... Like, I, I love his craft, the way yeah. that, that sound and, and image collide in his work his composition in this film is amazing incredible he's he's great i mean again with no he's very very good at working with this archival imaginary yeah you know taking footage that we think that we know so well and then really upending it which is precisely what he does in no as well yeah yeah Um, Um, he's very very good at that and this film is so well made it's just so well crafted but i just yeah, it was just a misfire with the with the central performance, and if you don't have that, I think the film kind of falls apart. It's no, as no. a sort of study, well, she of, was in yeah. every almost every yeah. shot. Yeah. I well, think yeah. so. It was, you know, and and it was actually it worked a lot uh, with the idea of television. Mm-hmm. And I noticed he he shot a lot of shots with dead on and very boxy. You very know, very similar to no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, but I was the same as you, um, Alex. I came to it thinking. Um, well, I have a problem with biopics most of the time anyway, not saying that I don't enjoy them at all, but they can be problematic. And I came to this because of Pablo Lorraine and uh, talking to a lot of people, a lot of, you know, just people in cafes, strangely enough, afterwards about the film, I think a lot of people felt 
let down because they were expecting to see this sweeping biopic of her life going from even the JFK assassination through to her meeting Onassis and all this, you know, this big epic. And it wasn't that at all. Pasolini, Ferrara's Pasolini had similar responses in that people thought that a film called Pasolini would be the Pasolini story. But instead it was just this tiny little slice, an important slice. And this Mm. is my favourite type of biopic for that reason. I I, I, I had no interest in the cradle to grave biopic I, I really like the fact that this captured I mean it, the, most of the events take place in, in one week and it's her remembering telling this story yet yeah, recounting some of it I just like the way it became an impressionist film about memory, about crafting mythology, kind of a meditation on what does the presidency mean to America. Mm. Um, I mean, the film's almost out of date already because that's been radically changed over the past few weeks. Um, but also just a film about a woman sitting with grief in the public eye and how she tried to maintain dignity. And I, I just found all of that combined immensely moving. And um, mm. and I think it's, it's a very, very layered layered film that I, I, I will need to see a few more times to unpack further but all I know at this point is that <laughs> just hit me hard and do we, Can I, oh, I was just going to ask if we know whether this is John Hurt's final role in that little yes role. that's what I was yeah. thinking as well and he just was wonderful beautiful, too beautiful performance in yeah it. but yeah. another beautiful performance I, I thought Greta Gerwig was fantastic in it and there was a moment with her when her and Jackie were um having an intimate discussion that was probably the warmest scene or moment in the film and it was really effectively conveyed. I so. would like to see Greta Gerwig do less cardigan frump. I'm, I'm, I think I'm she the was same really with you. Yeah, she like was I've, done, I've done with Greta's cardigan frump. I agree. Roles. This yep. was the first film where she was really against type. It, it yeah. actually took me a few scenes to realise... Same with me. Too. That's yeah. Greta Gerwig. Yeah. I was exactly the same. So bravo Brunette. for that if nothing else. <laughs> we are, we've been talking about Jackie that's now on limited release through Entertainment One Film. You'll listening to Plato's Cave. Three, triple, ah. I also want to mention Lion, which uh, has been getting a lot of attention. This is the Australian film based on the book about an actual experience. So what we see in the film is based on the real experience of this, this young boy who... Uh, uh, at the age of five, got lost in India. He went on a train that took him pretty much over to the other side of the country to where they speak a language that was different from his own and he went through quite a series of harrowing experiences before getting adopted and taken to Australia. And then, um, you know, a man in his 20s, he he went back to look for his original Indian family. I actually met uh, Saru, the real-life Saru, who this film is based on, a, a few weeks ago. At the pub, Thomas? Where? Yeah. What? No, we, we, were both, we, we were both part of a, a film festival in Jakarta, actually. Uh, um, <laughs> a, a bit of a... I saw photos of that event yeah. there. That hilarious. looked amazing. Uh, I did Jakarta Morning Television, and <laughs> I was judging their short so film competition. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he was there to help promote Lion and, and speak at opening night, which was their opening night film. It, it was an Australian... Indonesian Film Festival. The idea is to bridge, you know, Wonderful. the two cultures. But I'm getting off the point. Um, I, <laughs> no, that's a great story. I loved it. <laughs> I adored Lion. I, I um, you know, it's a film I haven't really thought about too hard in terms of its craft. But um, you know, it reduced me to tears several times throughout the film. And and I, uh, for me, I think the first half is its stronger part. It does have what I call full metal jacket syndrome. Whereas no matter how good the second half is, it, there's no way it can be better than that first yeah. half. <laughs> 
But um, but I was just, you know, I think the, the film beyond this kind of amazing story of somebody reconnecting with their identity, it is a film about how vulnerable children are, and um, just you know how so how the world is so full of dangers for some children. I mean, seeing what five year old Saru went through is absolutely heartbreaking. Um, but also, it's a very beautiful film about the power of of adoption and how that is and how that defines family. Uh, and, um, and the film also shows that the adoption process doesn't always go that smoothly either. We actually see two experiences in this film. But I'm immensely moved by the films. I'll, I'll, I'll join the ranks of the people who are sobbing uncontrollably during the end credits. Well, rather than reduced to tears, how about, let's say, elevated to tears? Well, elevated. elevated to tears. Yeah. Nice yes, that's beautiful. Did you like it, Cerise? I did quite like it, yeah. yeah. And I, I totally agree, though, with what you said about this sort of full metal jacket syndrome. That first half is so compelling. Um, and I hope it's not just me looking at uh, Indian those Indian scenes and seeing something so much um, comparatively alien uh, compared to life in was it Tasmania, much of the rest of it. But there is something much more compelling and frantic, and there's so much energy in the story at that point. And then we come to sort of staid bourgeois life in Tassie, um, and the drama slowly emerging there as uh, the character starts his search through uh, endless hours, scrutinising Google Earth which doesn't sound like it would make for great cinema, and it doesn't make for as great cinema as that first half, but it's, uh, yeah, still get drawn in. And, yes, I was quite moved by the end. Yeah. I was elevated to tears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, that was Lion, which is on general release through Transmission Films. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We're rushing through as many films as we can that have been released since we've been off air. And I think one that we really want to give some love to is Moonlight. We just heard some of the, the, the soundtrack to Moonlight there by Nicholas Brittell. Who, who, who wants to be brave enough to go for the film? That I th- can I say it's flawed, all of us? Shall I start? Can yeah. I tell you? You just did. Yeah, you just let, did. Let, 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 me, for it. let me just take the reins. Because it, it's a film that deals... It's a coming out sort of coming-of-age, coming-out queer story. It's a film about disenfranchised black men living in a black community. We have seen these narratives before, and yet this film makes it feel like we have never seen it ever before. This this filmmaker has such a deft, nuanced approach to film. Some of it feels stylized. Some of it feels very calm and naturalistic. I think what, what, what makes this film such a beautiful poetic experience is the use of stillness and quiet. This is one of the most gentle films I have seen, you know, I can't even remember when. Yeah, that's what I came out of it, thinking that was just such a gentle film, even though it deals with some really harrowing subject matter. This just feels like something I haven't seen before, and we've said that so many times on the show. That's what we love when we feel like we're seeing something we haven't seen before. Moonlight deserves every gushing ounce of praise it has received so far. Absolutely. This was, it, it, it felt like giving somebody a hug or being hugged. It had such a, an incredibly intense emotional effect on me. Um, it's beautiful to watch, like you said. It's, it's, it's a very beautifully crafted film. When I was watching it, it was one of those films that there's so much noise about it, I deliberately wanted to shut off. I didn't want to know as anything about it if I could avoid it and I was watching it and I just kept thinking of James Baldwin when I was watching it it's like this feels so James like it's like contemporary James Baldwin and of course it's based on a play in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue by Terrell Alvin McCraney but I found out later that the director um, had been considering doing a James Baldwin 
adaptation before oh, really? he went to do this. So he was very much in that headspace. Mm. Um, and I don't think that you can really underestimate, not Baldwin perhaps as a direct influence, but certainly the legacy, you know, that kind of history, the, the feeling, just the feeling of James Baldwin is so alive in this film. And one of the films I'm looking forward to so much this year is a, a movie about James Baldwin by Raoul Peck called I'm Not Your Negro. Mm. Um, and this, this film's got me ready. I'm just, I'm in a James Baldwin state of mind. <laughs> I, I love this film, well, like all of you, I love this film, but I loved it because it did big things in little ways and um, it, it, it managed to, if you if you just, I don't know, if you were sitting in gold class and you managed to order your fries at the wrong time, you would have missed a huge plot development. Things were just, big things were just thrown away in very small lines and that was really amazing. And the fact that it built... It, it essentially, and this is without ruining it, ruining it, it was a climax of dialogue. Like that was a, a which is for a, and I use quotation marks, black film, which is usually that idea of a, you know, gangster in the hood sort of thing. We, we're sort of built, unfortunately, to expect these, I don't know, some sort of big shootout and that the protagonist dying in a pool of blood or something. And this was not that film in any way um I, at one stage and i don't know i won't say what it is but uh, i don't know whether you guys saw it but i swear there was a photograph um in the third part because it was told in three parts as as the character grows older um there was a photograph that actually communicated a huge plot development that was not mentioned in dialogue so I'll talk to you about it after the show. <laughs> oh, well, there, 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 there was heaps of plot development that was done that wasn't signposted, or you know, yeah. a, a character who's no longer there is yeah. mentioned very much in in brief, and you just have a sense of oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense, that would have happened, and also gesture. I mean, I yep. think that people talked a lot about Carol and gesture, but I think that there's much more going on oh, than much that more nuance of yeah. gesture in this film. Well, especially when you've got a lead character played by three different actors mm. who doesn't like to talk, doesn't say very much. Sorry, sorry, yeah. oh, well, unlike well, us, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that. What gesture is one of the strongest gestural moments I can think of in cinema any time lately just involves a hand and some sand and it just melted me. It is a, a gorgeous film. That tripartite structure is fascinating because we're, we're invited to watch not just a character age but watch a characterization develop across three different bodies and it's really important that those bodies change over time, especially by that third act where it's quite astonishing, this transformation that occurs to the lead character. And, uh, and yet, so uh, the whole film uh, subverts any expectation that you might form at the start of that third part, seeing this new body. I don't want to go into particulars, but you somehow expect something... Again, I think, as you're suggesting, there are certain expectations subverted, and the finale is just so desperately tender, and there's an awful lot there, I think, to say about the armour that all of us build around us, that beneath it all, you know, we're all just wanting to melt, in fact, I think, and that, that closing moment is... It's such a, a, a tearjerker and it's earned it what's more. Yeah. Mm. I, the other thing I really loved about this film in terms of what it did that I look for in, in film is it's super specific. Like it's so specific about, you know, 
being black, being queer in, in Miami, and yet it has this universal appeal and themes as well. I mean, this is a film about how a man constructs his identity. I think it's very much a broad film about masculinity, but you can even go broader on top of that and just say all people, because we, we see how this person's identity is is constructed uh, it's in some ways good, in some ways 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 not, through the encounters he had, has in his life with acts of kindness and acts of of hostility so it's super specific but it's also just so universal in its appeal yeah stunning film um i, I would wager that we will all have seen this again give it in a couple of weeks oh, we'll all have been at the yeah. cinema yep, again definitely. yeah i'm looking forward to revisiting exactly, it yep. moonlight it's uh, on limited release through roadshow films you're listening to plato's cave here on three triple r you are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Split. We're going to change pace a little bit now and talk about the M. Night Shyamalan film Split, which came out a, a few weeks ago. And I think, like many people, I had kind of written him off as a director no longer worth paying any attention to. But this had got a bit of buzz, and I like the lead actor, James McEvoy. Um, it's a sort... It's, a, you know, people being, it's a, people being held prisoner in a in a bunker-type film. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a man who kidnaps three teenage girls, and as the film unravels, we discover the man has got a very particular um, condition that used to be known as... Oh, I've forgotten what it's... it's oh, multiple personality multiple personality used to be known as multiple personality disorder. But I, I'll just say up front, the way that's represented in the film is so outlandishly over the top. It is... Um, it is I don't think it's ever presented as something we should take seriously. Like, I, yeah. I, I don't believe this is an offensive film that's um, ridiculing a vulnerable part of society because this is way over the top. And this is what I enjoyed about it. This is a B-grade exploitation film that's kind of shot better than it deserves to be. Like, I actually thought this was quite a well-crafted, very unusual camera angles and camera movement. Um, yeah, this, this is a return to form. This is Sixth Sense Unbreakable Signs Good, in my opinion. I had an absolute ball with this ridiculous, outrageous film. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I thought I, I came into it thinking, oh, God, is this going to be dodgy territory? But also it was kind of, um, I mean, I, I don't know about the science behind it. I think it was... Oh, I do. <laughs> No, nah. nah, just no. Nah. But I did like the way that um, that even though the the, the villains, because there were three personalities that were really the villains, weren't there? Amongst the twenty odd, twenty odd inhabitants, twenty three, I think. And the, the, yeah, yeah, it's dissociative identity disorder, disorder is the correct terminology. That's right. Yeah. And I like the way that it, um, it it played on the superhero aspect of that. Yes, and that it wasn't necessarily it's a, a power that could be harnessed for good, not evil. And um, that was uh, kind of a line it was taking with it. And there's a, there's a, I'm not really sure what it was saying, and I might talk to you guys after the show about it, but there was a reference to Unbreakable as well, which I think is one of M. Night Shyamalan's best films. I, didn't, I, I don't know whether I really like that reference and I don't know what it really was. But anyway, if anyone's seen that film, they will recognise it in Split. Yeah, but, but this is like Unbreakable. This is, a, this is like a comic book film that's dressed up to look 
more prestigious than it is. Oh, yes, and, and I, absolutely. I like, I like that clash between style and substance. Well, yeah. it's got uh, an actor on top of his game just chewing the scenery like nobody's business and James <laughs> McAvoy's having a great time. Uh, yeah, it's a totally silly film which is quite silly for quite a long time and then gets extremely silly very quickly and then ends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but it gets nasty. I love you to pitch Hollywood films. That ending is quite devastating. That ending is actually quite devastating when you think about it. Yeah. So we can't say anything. But no. Well, the suspenseful yeah. sequences in it are effectively suspenseful. It's, it's very familiar, well-trodden territory, but it still works. He, he does still have some directorial smarts. Mr. Yeah. What do we call him? He's, he's M. Night Shyamalan, I Not Shyamalan a ding dong at all. Oh, stop it. Absolutely. I just want to clarify, I don't want to be flippant about the portrayal of mental illness in cinema because it has had a bad history of cinema portraying mental illness oh, yes. in a very exploitive way that has been de- detrimental to the way it's you know, that real conditions are perceived in the outside world. But but this film is closer to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde than mm-hmm. anything else. Yeah, I think after films like Sybil and The Three Faces of Eve, um, mm-hmm. quite old films that deal very seriously with the quote-unquote mm. mental health issues at stake, I think that with films like Sucker Punch and Identity, you well, start moving into the territory of trope. Yeah. rather than actual mental Black health Swan. issue. I mean, film. I had big problems with Black Swan, yeah. to be honest. I yeah. found that a far more problematic yeah, film. Natalie this is got problematic. Got <laughs> problematic. Yeah. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Let's turn our attention now to another film that's been getting a lot of uh, chatter and attention that's um, got released a couple of weeks ago, and that's Manchester by the Sea, the latest film by Kenneth Lonergan. Yes. Yeah, who director of Margaret and You Can Count On Me. Yes, and I think that's it, actually. I think yep. that's it. Few films, yep. few and far between. But he's building reputation as yes. a director of strong drama. Yes, and strong dialogue, situation-driven drama, and, and based very much in uh, real and, in this case, quite tragic circumstances. This is a film about grief, and it's a film that's not in any great hurry to explain why the protagonist played by Cassie Affleck is so miserable Um, it it will jump back in time and back to the present uh, quite a few times before we actually get to the nitty gritty and then the film's still not quite done and uh, it's um Oh, look, actually, I, I was very, very moved by this. Uh, Casey Affleck, even though he's quite impassive in this film, um, manages to communicate a lot of emotional distress of his character, who, when we first meet him, is a sort of a humble janitor who uh, is not what you'd call a people person uh, and is fairly irascible and generally getting into a bit of bother. Um, but by degrees, Lonergan weaves us into this, this sort of tapestry of grief connected with his family um and we don't quite get the sense of uh, how much family he has um until serious serials uh, series several flashbacks uh intermittently interrupt the action and take us to this little town of manchester by the seaside and where everyone seems to know everyone else's business and he's um seems to be a figure of some dark renown and uh by degrees this film just teases out all of these secrets and uh, you know but Mid midway just, just hits you hard with the the very matter at the core of his grief and it hurts. It, it very nicely signals that all those flashbacks are actually him sitting with memories. Yeah, and it, 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 
the, the, the film language used in this is, 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 is great. It's not overt. You just very quickly realise, oh, this is him remembering the past. And I quite like that narrative technique of, you know, something has happened and we're going to get drip-fed the information from the past throughout the film. Um, and, and that's kind of what... That's the narrative drive, waiting for us to catch up with what he's remembering about the past so we can find out what it is that happened to him. Well, it's not just that. It's strategic withholding of information yeah. as well in the interest of creating a compelling narrative. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's hardly yeah. a radical technique. No, no, but, um, it's very effective. But I like the dual narrative structure in yeah. this film an awful lot. Mm. Yeah. I kind of found that... I, look, I loved the film. I thought it was a little bit too long. It could have been... but. Look, this is kind of a problem with a lot of films these days, unfortunately. But um, I think that once it, act- it it did finish with the teasing out of the memory, it then dragged a little bit too far. It was then about a bit of a, a relationship establishment that I felt, okay, all right, it's not quite as interesting now. I've sort of lost... Uh, it's lost a bit of steam for me. But um, it certainly was, uh, I think... Uh, Tour de Force performance by Casey Affleck and uh, he's definitely the hashtag Affleck win against hashtag Affleck fail live by night (laughs) (laughs) Ben Affleck Um, God we're talking in streets (laughs) this is is where we're at (laughs) but um, yeah I was really I was really impressed with what he did and I think in terms of that um, that guy that you see at the pub who gets a belly full of piss and then decides to punch someone's lights out um it gave a kind of i don't know whether i'm going to look at guys at the pub who do that in a different way but it did show a different side and what someone might be going through that makes them that kind of drunk or that fragile i think i mean i agree that the performances in this were really sort of hitting it out of the ballpark not just affleck but um michelle williams really i mean she she's solid at the best of times but this is really something special on her part which is really saying something story is extraordinarily strong i think it's a really solid melodrama i'd say even more than drama i think it was a really moving story but for me this was death by overwrought soundtrack if I ever, please, if you make films, don't use Adagio in G minor. I can, <laughs> I can happily never see. It's like How does it go? Adagio in G minor. It's that you would know it. There's a piece of music in this film that is just so you will know it if you heard it. That, that and did it's surprise so me that it's they use this, that. Yeah. It's this very subtle film, and then there's this, this insanely overwrought melodramatic piece of music that they just loop all the way through the film, yeah. and it drove me potty like it just drove me to distraction <laughs> to the point that i just disconnected I, I very like i said i admire the craft i admire the performances like on a technical level i really understood why this film was getting the heat but that one piece of music every time i heard it i just got a little bit I, I, I couldn't help feel that ha- i haven't worked it out yet but I, I kept on thinking there's some reason they're using this because it it, it really does feel was um, it to piss me off thomas was yeah, that they, what they, 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 they saw alex coming um <laughs> The music was the weakest element of this film for I me think, too. To I, me, I it's, it's only slightly less cliched than that Clint Mansell piece from Requiem for a Dream, which I, I love Clint Mansell. Don't get me oh. wrong, like Clint Mansell is is God, of yeah, course. Yeah. But that you know that piece Over, from Requiem for a Drink, terrible, it's, yeah. uh, it's just this the Kronos this really quartet. like pearl clutching mm. that Kronos quartet that goes over. Yeah, it's it's classic funeral music. So much emotion. But look, there were also some laughs in this film. It wasn't just totally bleak. Oh, you needed them. Yeah, and the laughs are actually quite funny. And Matthew Broderick has a pretty cute little 
cameo. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Gretchen yeah. Moll. Gretchen Moll. Yeah. Pack, pack a bong for Gretchen yeah, Moll. There's a lot of very there's good the supporting roles. Yeah. For 2017. There it is right there. <laughs> Glad it was for Gretchen Moll. Yeah. But look, just get, to get back to Casey Affleck, though, what I think he does so well in this film is it's a man who he's going through the motions of being polite, although he's quite antisocial, and he has kind of got that dead, shut-down face. But you, you look at his eyes, and he's got all that pain there. And for an actor to, to sustain that for this entire film is amazing, even when he's playing music that annoys Alex. He sustains <laughs> that, that intense look of um, Maybe that's what maintained yeah. his... Yeah. his yeah. And without ever resorting to capital A acting. <laughs> <laughs> and it is a, a beautiful setting. That is a gorgeous little town, Manchester by the Sea. Massachusetts, isn't it? Isn't that what the Affleck's own? I think they uh, sure. own they own Massachusetts. Yeah, pretty much. They, all their films are in Massachusetts. So, mm. Yeah. Well, I think we should stop it there. We've done actually very well. Um, oh, I should mention Manchester by the Sea is on general release through Universal Pictures. Um, we thought we may touch on Tony Erdman tonight, which has got released last week, but I think we'll cover that in full next week. We can go back to doing our regular shows from next week onwards. So sort of three segments with three full film reviews and Tony Erdman will be one of them. Uh, definitely rush out and see it. I think we're all... We can... We can, we can Release a spoiler mm. now and say we're all very much big fans. Uh-huh. I film. haven't seen it yet, so oh, you might no. hate it. You might come yeah, in and say that's come in and go, you guys, you've got your case, heads up your We're going to change the locks. <laughs> we'll say, get out now. We better get out of here. You've been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas, and Emma Westwood on Plato's Cave. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.